20 this morning, and we'll be sitting here this week and next week um, to look at this section of Ephesians. And then Jamie will conclude our series with the epilogue after that. So we have three more weeks left in this book that we've been traveling through since last fall. And, um, and then we'll head into Easter week. Um, before I read this, I don't know if this is a reminder or if I've never said this, but just, just to rem- rem- remind you all, um, when this letter was written to, the, to this church, it would have been read all at once. And, and maybe, maybe two or three times over. And so we, you know, that, that's kind of more of what, what happened, what would have happened. And uh, what we do uh, by taking a, a section of it and zero in, in on it, um, that's not necessarily what they would be doing. And so if that's not your practice or is this, you know, a different tradition that you come from that you're, you know, what is it that we do here as we take this scripture and we, we exegete it, we look at it at, at, at its original language and we un- try to unpack what it means and what it says. Um, that is something that our tradition does and it's the way that we study the Bible. Um, but when this letter was written to the churches in Ephesus, it would just been written, read as a whole. And, um, and so some of that's important because you get the fullness of it. And as we come to this last section, um, this would be application. And, uh, and I would suggest that to you as well, that everything that Paul has talked about at this point, uh, up, up to this point, this section really kind of houses the application of his main theme of what it means to be united to Jesus Christ, to be one, the unity of the church. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Uh, this section of it, at least, found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10 to 20. But let's also try to keep all of it in mind as we hear this. Uh, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we ask now that you do a miracle and by a miracle that you would soften hardened hearts that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you would change us, 
We pray that your word would become real to us, that it would be a comfort to us, an encouragement, hope, all the things that we have in Christ. Do that for us now, we pray, for your glory. Amen. In an article that ran this week in the AP News about a shoe company called Adidas, um, it talked about how Adidas is in a bit of a bind right now um, after severing their partnership with rapper Kanye West, or Ye, after multiple hate speech rants uh, from Kanye over social media. Some of y'all might be aware of that. But um, Adidas broke with the rapper, cutting ties with him and, and any future contracts um, that, that, that they had planned to do. And of course, you know, not have, wanting to have any association with any of the things that he had said. And, and part of this means that they are cutting uh, their deal with him with this specific Yeezy Wear uh, gear that he was, you know, promoting and the whole brand was centered around him. Here's the problem, though, for Adidas, and what the article went on to talk about is what do you do with the $1.3 billion worth of inventory that they now have in warehouses that they don't want to sell and can't sell because it's all tied to him? Um, and so the article went on to talk about this, that the CEO made it clear that this was their number one priority was trying to figure out what to do with the $1.3 billion of inventory. The problems are is they, they can't sort of ditch the gear or throw it away or burn it or trash it. That would not be sustainable. You know, it'd obviously mess up our uh, environment. Donating the shoes is not a possibility anymore because, um, well, people would potentially take them and resell them on the market. Um, and then, you know, if they were to rebrand the shoes, the article went on to talk about and sell them, Kanye would still actually get a portion of those sales because of the previous contract they signed. And so they're just in a dilemma. What do you do? The article went on to say the company expects an operating loss of over $730 million this year. The last time Adidas reported an annual loss, like this, George H.W. Bush was president and Wayne's World was still a new movie. It was 31 years ago. The point here is who you align yourself with matters. Who you align yourself with matters. By contrast, uh, there's another company I'll mention called Nike. And back in 1984, they took a risk on a young man out of North Carolina called Michael Jordan. And their hope was to sign him and to sign him to a, a shoe deal, hoping that they could maybe make three to four million dollars over the next four years. Well, they made 100, over 120 million that first year, and actually this year, this shoe line breaks five billion in revenue. And it's estimated that, that Nike, because of this deal, they make three to four million every hour by people buying these shoes. Who you align yourself with matters. As we come to the close of this final section in the book or letter uh, to the Ephesians, Paul shifts to this topic of spiritual warfare. And many believe, as I said, me included, that this is a summary of everything he has said so far, which is who do you align yourself with? Who are you in? 
Are you in the first Adam? Or are you in the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ? Right? Are you dead in your trespasses or are you alive in Christ? Who you align yourself with matters. And Paul's been saying over and over and over to these Christians in Ephesus that because you are in Christ by faith alone, you belong to him and therefore you have the benefits that belong to Christ. You have redemption, you have adoption, you have the forgiveness of sins, all of this stuff. But what does this have to do with spiritual warfare? Well, everything. And this is why this is sort of application for the end of this letter. Paul will tell us in this text that your power to withstand the evils of Satan and his schemes will come in the very same way that your salvation comes to you, that your forgiveness comes to you. And that is why, how? By being in Christ by remembering, by recognizing, by, by, by understanding that the powers that we have, the strength that we have, the armor that we're going to look at this week and next that we put on, it's Christ. It is being in him, which is where our strength and our power comes from. Richard Lovelace puts it this way, the ordinary remedy to spiritual attack is knowing that you are in Christ. In other words, who you align with matters. What I want us to see this morning with our time is because our power comes from an armor of being in Christ, we can and we must stand upon his truth and his righteousness in battle, not our own. And so two things I want to look at with our time this morning, and that is I want us to look uh, at the nature of the battle as Paul lays it out here. So we're going to talk about that. And then I want us to look at the plan. So the nature of the battle and then the plan for the battle as Paul lays this out. And then we'll leave the rest to next week because we can do that. So let's take the first one, the nature of the battle. As we look at verses 10 to 12 uh, primarily here. Um, by, by nature... And I'll just start here. I love how the Bible just assumes things, and it doesn't feel like it needs to defend it. It doesn't feel like it needs to explain it, right? We're in a battle, and you're going to go out to lunch, perhaps, or you're going to go home and do whatever you do after church, and you're going to drive down the streets in College Park, and it's going to be a pretty normal, decent day here. And there's not going to be a whole lot of, uh, you know, evidence that there is actually a battle going on. But there is. There is, and the, the Bible assumes it. The Bible tells us about it. We don't know all the details about what's going on, but this is one of the things the Bible assumes. But here we get a few of the aspects of this battle. First, where this battle takes place, and this is really important for us, and this is certainly important for, the, for Paul's listeners. Um, there's really two places that this battle takes place. The first, as we see there at the end of verse 12, is in the heavenly places, Okay, um, Paul has used this phrase already back at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. In short, the, the heavenly places, as he talks about it, is that general term for the spiritual world that the Ephesian Christians and all Christians do inhabit by virtue of what? By being united to Jesus. We are in union with Christ, and so we are where he is via our spirit, the Ephesian Christians have been joined with Christ and are also in this place, the heavenly realms, because Christ is there. 
And so the picture that the Bible gives us of the spiritual world is that while Christ reigns, this is where the heart of the battle looms until he returns. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, to live in this atmosphere, whatever the heavenly spaces are, is to be brought into the center of a conflict zone. That's the first place that this battle exists. The second place, though, that this battle exists, according to the text, is in the ordinary routines of our daily life. Remember the very first sermon we talked about in in Ephesians last fall? Just nod. Yeah, we remember that. Um, Paul wrote in his introduction to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Remember that? And we talked about how Paul sees Christians in two places. We're in Christ where he is, but at the same time, we're in Ephesus or we're in College Park. Ephesus for Paul is where the conflict in the heavenly places is joined or this world wherever Christians are. Ferguson again notes, wherever grace brings advance and victory, attacks will come. This means the battle then takes place as well where Christians live, which is also what I like to call the mundaneness of life. So it's in the heavenly places, right? Places that we don't see, but that we trust exist because the Bible says they do, but it's also here in our daily lives. Some think this transition to spiritual warfare is a little bit abrupt as we keep going through the book. You know, Paul's just got done talking about marriages. He talked about families. He's talked about work. But actually, it's not because it's in those places, friends. It's in those routines, day in and day out, where attacks are made. It's folding laundry. Right? It's, it's sending your 20th email while your mind moves towards places of what? Resentment, perhaps, towards others, towards family, towards co-workers, Because what? Maybe you deserve better. It's in the moments of boredom that sends you reaching for your phone or computer to solve this boredom with the next dopamine rush that your screen will bring you. Thus looking at endless TikToks, pornography, mindless searches, you know the drill. That's where the battle takes place. It's not in moments necessarily where Christians are going to do something incredible for God, although it can show up there. It is in the day-to-day, ordinary routines of your life. This is where the battle comes to us and seeks to divide what is united in Christ. Consider Adam and Eve here real quick before we move on, right? When we think about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, chapter 3, right, it is Like the attack that came to them, right? It did not come to them in their pursuit to do great things for God as much as we're able to to discover. Rather, it was what? In their day-to-day mundane life of sitting around, hanging out, and all of a sudden thinking, hey, this looks good. That's where Satan attacked. Look back with me again in verse 12 here. Paul says, for we do not wrestle or your translation might say struggle. We do not wrestle, the text says, 
against flesh and blood. The word for wrestle there or struggle is, is known as, a, otherwise, a hand-to-hand combat. And the point here that, that his listeners would be taking from this is, 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 is drawing into the closeness of this battle. So yes, it is in the heavenly places, but it is right here in front of you. In the ordinary places of life, it is a fixed bayonets type of closeness, Paul is saying. This is where it, t- where it takes place. Well, what, what, about, what about the who as we round out the nature of this battle? Who then is this battle against? And we just read it in verse 12, not flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. So just to be clear, the first, the, the, the battle is not against mankind. It's not. It doesn't mean that, as we'll see, the adversary doesn't use human beings, but the enemy is not mankind. The enemy is spiritual. It is a spiritual adversary. It is Satan. And according to the text, it's not flesh and blood. Instead, Paul tells us in verse 11, we are to put on the full armor of God so that what you can stand against the schemes of the devil. That's who this battle is against. And as we come back to even just thinking about what our modern minds can, you know, take in and what they can't, the Bible, again, 100% believes in evil and 100% believes that there's actually an intelligence behind this. And for the sake of time, I'm, I'm cutting out quite a bit uh, in this section. But if that's your question, like, how, how do I understand as a, somebody living in 2023, how do I understand what the Bible says about Satan and, and evil and, and how that might work? I, I, I would love to talk with you about that further. I'm going to cut some of that out just for time because that's not where I want to land the most of my time. Other than just to say that this is, this is what the Bible believes. And the, and the Bible actually goes on to talk about how this, this Satan, right, is somebody who is looking to devour you. Now, we can also say that we don't need to, you know, deify this thing. We don't need to fear it, as we'll see later on in the text. And we also don't need to, you know, think of this as the yin-yang, which is so easy to do that, okay, there's God, there's, there's the positive good power, and then there's, there's Satan, who's the, the equal and opposite. No. There's, Satan's not even close to the power and the strength of God. It's not a yin-yang uh, dichotomy here. He, as the scripture tells us, is a fallen angel. And as that, has certain powers and abilities. Why is he still able to, to roam? I don't know. And those are questions that we can talk about if, you, if those are your questions later. But I will end with, with, with this, round out this point with this. You know, I think it's when we get to this idea of spiritual warfare and we get to this idea of battle and we talk about, you know, where this exists according to the text and who this is uh, against, um, I think most of our questions become, you know, why in the world does this still happen? You know, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're told that, that Satan has been defeated. We're told that, you know, we're, we're victorious. So why is this still happening? And the best example that I can give you, and you've probably heard this too, is just to think about it as we think about how wars end. And, and the short answer is, is God's timing is not my timing, it's not your timing. But, you know, I always like to go back to World War II. 
And think about it in these terms where, uh, you know, any historian would tell you, but of course even those generals and, and, and all the allied forces on that day knew that this is, this is what would decide the war. And what was that day? It was the day that, that American and allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and Utah. And there wasn't any confusion about what that movement was about. They knew that if we won the beaches, we would win the war. If we lost the beaches, we would lose the war. And history has proven that to be true. Well, what happened? We won the, we won the, won the beaches. <laughs> um, we call that D-Day. Did the war end? Did all casualties cease? Did nobody else die after we got those beaches in June 6, 1944? No, no. There was a lot more death, a lot more destruction. Even though victory was already in the hands of American allied forces. And it wouldn't be until May 8th of 1945, also known as Victory in Europe Day, where the war ended. And that's not perfect, right? But I think it helps to understand a little bit of, of, of how the Bible sees both the tension between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the defeat of all evil, but yet we are still in this place where evil exists and we are waiting for his return where he will make all things new and he will put an end to all this, but that's not where we are. And the Bible takes that tension and it's fine with it. I'm not fine with it. I have questions. But that's where we are. And this is the, that's why we are in a battle. And so wherever that sits with you this morning, I think the best thing that, that, that I can offer at this point at least is to say, if that seems like hocus pocus to you, I would encourage you to give that some real thought. I would encourage you to give some thought to the reality that when you walk out this door this morning, you are in a real battle that is raging on and will continue to go on in some measure or another until Christ returns. And while I don't have all the answers to summarize all that and to make that fit into a nice bow, here's what I do have for you. You have a defense against this. You have a way to stand. And this is where Paul goes next in his section of the letter. And let's get to that. This is the nature of the battle. This is where it is, who it's against, some of the things that Paul gives us. But let's move now to the plan. What do we do, Paul? What do we do? Go back to verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is where all of Paul's in Christ language comes home to roost in the application of our lives by virtue of us being in Christ. But we also find our strength in this battle in spiritual warfare by being united in Christ as well, right? So we get the salvation that, we, that, that Paul's talked about, but we get the strength and the power in this battle as well by being united to Christ and so what are the things that he tells us to do? Well, first he says, put on, as you see there, the whole armor of God. He says it twice. Look at verse 11 and 13. He says, put on the whole armor of God. He doesn't say put on some of the pieces if you have them. He says, put on all of it. 
the whole armor. Well, what is this armor? As you heard, even in our Old Testament reading this morning, much of what Paul is referring to with this armor is talked about in the Old Testament. He's pulling all of this from the Old Testament. Going back to Isaiah 59 that was read earlier, verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, what's important here? is who is the he that Isaiah is talking about? And if you go back and read the whole thing, you see the he is God. Like God's putting this on in the Old Testament. In verses like this, it is God who is the one putting on this armor to bring salvation. And in this case in Isaiah, the text says that God looks and he sees no justice. So he comes to bring it and he puts on his armor to do so. It is God's armor. It is his helmet of salvation, his breastplate of righteousness. But by the time we get to the New Testament, by the time we get to our text this morning in Ephesians, what has changed? And you'd see the same in 1 Thessalonians if you went and read that this morning in chapter 5, right? It's not God who is putting on his armor. It's the believer who is putting on God's armor. This is the first thing. And what, you know, what, what is God's armor? Like, what, it's him. <laughs> it's his truth that he clothes you in. It's his promises that he tells you in his word, it's his love, it's Christ. He's given you all that he has. And friends, that's all you need. Amen. Put on the full armor of God. God is giving us himself, which is why Paul begins this with be strong, in your own might, no. Be strong in your own abilities to fight the devil, no. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So put on the full armor of God. Okay, now what? Put this armor on, what are we supposed to do? He tells us three times to stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand in the imperative. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, the plan so far is to put on the full armor of God, the whole armor, which is Christ, and to stand. Here's what Paul doesn't say. Ephesians, I want you to go get your armor on. I want you to stretch out, do some calisthenics, and get ready to go fight the devil. That's not what he says. And I don't know if that, that may sound silly to you, but that was my upbringing. And, 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 and as I mentioned in the beginning about reading the letter as a whole, part of what, you know, when we don't get the whole letter, when we think like that, and it's easy to think like that, and there are some things that we are going to do. It's not all passive, and we'll get to that next week. 
But this is the primary thing. But when, when we somehow think that now, because of this battle, we are now going to go fight the devil, or we're going to get into hand-to-hand combat and take him down, it's like we enjoyed traveling with Christ in those first three chapters of Ephesians where we got the salvation and then we just left him at the end of chapter three and we're just going to keep moving on into our own world and our own life as we live this Christian life. That's what happens when we don't read this text and heed what it tells us to do, which is to stand. We aren't called to fight the devil. The devil's been fought. He has lost. And your hope, my hope, is that we are in the one who has fought him and won. That's Paul's point. I thought it was interesting to, to look around in, in, in the text, other, other, other books of where Paul uses this word to stand and just listen to these. It, it almost just sort of didn't even notice it. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or not, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now go to 1 Corinthians 16.13, be watchful, stand firm. Act like men, be strong. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Even in Proverbs 24.16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Again, you and I, just for the record, we are not fighting the devil We are putting on the armor of the one who has already fought and defeated the devil. And in that armor, which is another way of saying we are in Christ, we find our strength and power to stand. So what does this look like? Let's take the shield of faith for for this example. We will talk about the other pieces of armor next week, but look at verse 16. Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield that Paul is referring to is one of those full sort of body shields that would be about two and a half feet tall that that soldiers would actually be able to um, crouch behind and therefore sort of cover themselves made of thick, dense material that any type of arrow, which was usually lit on fire, could, could, could take and it could absorb both protecting the person behind it, but also extinguishing the flame itself. And so the image is standing as the evil one does what? Lobs arrows at the church, at Christians, to divide, to get you to not believe the promises that God has already made to you. Example, most of you got up this morning and you drove and you rode to church, I assume, some walked, I'm sure. And just like any normal Sunday, uh, some of you, perhaps maybe who have kids, we'll say, uh, might have gotten up and might have had uh, this type of morning getting out of the house, which usually ended in some type of yelling of phrases, we do this every Sunday. 
Why aren't your clothes laid out? Why can't you be ready on time? Which usually comes back with some type of sass or, or smart remark or I don't like church. Again, hypothetical here, hypothetical. Which then, you know, mom and dad and parent and child, whatever, they, it gets a little more heated. And then, then you're just angry because, you know, here we are again. And now somebody needs to be grounded because I can't, you know, let this go, this type of uh, behavior go um, unpunished. And, and, and it's like within two minutes, um, you're frustrated at each other, you're angry, and you're in the car and you're driving the church. And as a parent, right, you get everyone in that car, you start to calm down, and you're thinking to yourself, this is not the way I want this to happen. I don't want to go to church like this. Why is this so hard? Take a few breaths, calm down. And then this thought sort of enters your mind, somewhere between Adelphi and university. And it says this, it says, you're really gonna pull into that parking lot and get out of that car, smiling with this family, like everything is okay. You're a phony, you're a fake. You're really going to go in there and do that? What is that? It's an arrow. Let me give you another one. You're driving the church, and you looked at pornography the night before. And here's what you hear. You're seriously going to walk through those doors and stand in the sanctuary and sing a hymn? And worship? You're not just a phony, you're disgusting. What is that? It's an arrow. Maybe in the midst of this service, right, the music is not what you want to hear. The pastor keeps going on and on with a point that is now way, way overdone. Or maybe you're looking around and there's still division and hurt and you start thinking to yourself, like nobody really cares about me here. I just need to go find another church. Or maybe just church is just not working for me, period. What is that? It's an arrow. So on one level, those arrows seek to destroy you individually. It's stopping at the confession, and it's not going to the pardoning of, of assurance of grace. And it's there to do two things. It's either to, to, to get you to be defined by your shame and guilt. So hopefully you turn the car around. Or it goes the other direction. Self-righteousness. You're going to pay for that. You're gonna go in there and you're, maybe if you worship good enough, maybe if you do enough throughout the week, you can self-atone for the way that you talk to your children this morning. Maybe God won't think you're as disgusting as you really are for what you did the night before. Those are the options. And I'm thankful for a pastor friend who, who talked about this, that he, he, here, here's, here's, 
here's why, the, the, here's why I believe that Satan is real. Because he is smart. Some of you all have seen the movie, or the show, The Social Dilemma. And, and what I'm talking about here is, is the options that are presented to you. And in that episode, or in that documentary, uh, uh, The Social Dilemma, it talks about social medias, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all that stuff. And it talks about how, you know, when you open any of those apps, right, open Facebook, open Instagram, open TikTok, you realize that like all the options that you're looking at, and by options are things that you want to look at, you want to read, those aren't all the options. Those are the options that the creator of the, of the app wants you to see. And those are all designed to get you to stay on there longer so that they can make more money by you being on there. And then hopefully maybe you buy something, which then raises their stock because, see, consumer trafficking, right? But think of the intelligence behind that. It's, it's brilliant. It's made billions of dollars for people. Those aren't all the options. You're being controlled by that, okay? When the arrows come in, you're not getting all the options, which Paul calls the schemes of the devil. You're getting guilt and shame or works righteousness. Those are your two options. Figure it out. Here's, here, here's, here's an option that's not on there. When you're driving to church, and you've looked at something you shouldn't, when you've yelled at somebody that you wish you didn't yell at. For it is by grace. That you have been saved. That's not an option. Here's another one. God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's not an option. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. It's not an option. In him, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Here's another one we read this morning. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not an option. So do you see how the armor works? That as those arrows come in and they give you the options that, that, that we buy, right? Our self-righteousness or guilt and shame. What God is doing, he's saying, Use the armor to remind you of who you are. Because look, even when, you're, even, even when you don't yell at your kids and you don't look at that stuff and you, and you do all the right things, you still need the righteousness of Jesus. That's our option. And it's your only option and it's your best option. And that is what happens when you put on the whole armor of Christ. And again, we'll look at the details of that next week, but this is why Paul says we stand. And as those things come in, and we're not saying that, 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 that grace keeps us in those places. It doesn't. Grace, grace grows us, okay? But in those places, when those arrows come in, you are reminded of the promises of God to you in Christ Jesus. 
which is to come back to the beginning to say, who you align yourself with matters. So who are you aligned with this morning? Who are you in? Is it the first Adam or is it the second Adam? Because that is the story that runs rent-free in your head today, tomorrow, and the next. And it, it is so telling that God understands the place that we're in, that he would be kind enough to what? To lend us his armor, <laughs> to give us himself in this time that we might stand, that we might persevere to the end. It's his goodness. It's his kindness. This is how we stand. So who are you aligned with this morning? Whose righteousness are you appealing to? Whose power are you relying on in this battle? When those arrows come in and they will, what is your strategy? What is your plan? Let me offer you this one. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. It it seems in in the moments where we're just sort of ready to, to go prove ourselves to you, it's in those moments where we need to be the most concerned. May we grow in dependence of you. May we grow in dependence of of your continued love for us. We are not saved from something and then to go about our lives proving ourselves to you or proving that we're worth being here. We are saved from our sins and we are saved to you. That is our primary identity. That is our primary narrative of how we understand ourselves, how we live and how we grow, how we love and how we serve one another. We are in Christ Jesus. May that be the armor that we leave here with, that we secure and fasten and put on every single day. For your glory we pray. Amen.